Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. As a reminder for everyone, please check us out on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your social media, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we're on Spotify, iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, all those places. Uh, you can find us there. And of course, be sure to check out our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Um, everything we have for you all is free always, um, but if you feel so inclined to give a dollar or more per month to help us stay afloat, please do so there. Again, that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. And of course, if you can't afford the dollar per month, uh, feel free to retweet us and repost some of our items, um, things that we share on social media. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a colleague, um, and definitely feel free to interact with us through one of those mediums. Anyway, on with the show. Today's episode is a Comrade Mommy episode, so of course, if you are not interested in anything related to parenting, uh, feel free to check out now. Although, just as an FI, this is going to be a discussion about once more um, women in labor, but a, a question that's been raised in my own mind, of course, about domestic work and what that means um, and how we're kind of dealing with that end of the pandemic, but also uh, perhaps a future of domestic work and what that may look like in the aftermath of all of this. Um, I just wanted to start off also by saying that I am seriously sorry for not having posted anything for Left POC in a while. Um, for those of you who may not know, I am uh, raising a child and trying to finish a dissertation and trying to work on so many things at once. Um, and I've been doing a project that I will hopefully be able to tell you all about soon um, that's taken a lot of my time. It's an incredible project. I love working on it, um, but it's been requiring a bit of um, some all-nighters on my end. So again, not that much free time. Um, and also my child doesn't go to daycare or anything like that, which I'll get into again in this episode. Um, it may come up again, but it is relevant, uh, to this episode. So I'll be talking about that as well. Um, but anyway, that being said, that doesn't offer a lot of free time. And I feel like the last comrade mommy episode I did, um, I, I ended that one or the one before it, I talked a bit about how like totally nuts my schedule has been since having a child. So basically, um, you know, I take naps kind of, I don't really sleep. Like I don't, I, I don't remember the last time I had like a full six to eight hours of sleep uninterrupted by some sort of task that I had to do around the house. Um, or something related to school or something related to my daughter. So it's a very, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really tired all the time. <laughs> I'm really tired. Uh, my husband works full time during the day at from home and I take care of the, the, all the housework and stuff at that time. And of course our daughter during that time. Um, and so I have to start my work at like five or six in the afternoon and then somehow manage to, uh, also cook something to eat and cook the baby's food for the next day. And, try to do laundry throughout the day and try to keep the house somewhat 
livable. I mean, it's, it's a mess. Like it's very difficult to take time to clean. Um, I do what I can. It's, it's basically just, I feel like I'm living in a constant state of triage. Um, and you know, if things had been better managed here in terms of the pandemic, maybe I would feel safer, um, or I would feel more comfortable sending my daughter to some sort of daycare or like, you know, a play date or something with someone else's mom or family or whatever. Um, but that's not the case. And, and people are just out there while and still like there's no pandemic. Um, and so, you know, one thing that's come away, that I've come away from this with is like everyone's understanding of safe or like following protocols is really like radically different. Um, and so when you have the opportunity to meet up with people or to hang out with them and they say they're COVID safe or whatever, their, their idea of COVID safe may be really different from my idea of COVID safe. I feel like my idea of COVID safe is like, uh, you know, military level lockdown style and COVID safe. Uh, as I've mentioned in many other podcast episodes and uh, through other means, you know, like I have not walked, I've not stepped foot in a grocery store in a year or any sort of store with the exception of once when I walked into a CVS wearing an N95 to get a flu shot. Um, and that was there. Not a CVS, my bad. Rite Aid. Sorry. Sorry, Rite Aid. Um, they're not sponsoring this though, so that's okay. Anyway, I walked into a Rite Aid to get a flu shot. Um, and then of course, the other only, the only other activity that I do indoors is to take my daughter to the doctor's office um, for like checkups and stuff. So yeah, it's been, it's been rough. For me, idea, the idea of lockdown is seriously lockdown. I have gotten one round of the vaccine. Um, my next round is in a couple weeks. And uh, I think for me, you know, once I'm fully vaccinated plus two weeks, blah, 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 I know the drill. Um, I think the most exciting thing for me is going to be just to like go grocery shopping one day. Um, I miss being able to go grocery shopping um, and feel comfortable, right? Like I know that the vaccine is not foolproof or any of that and all these variants, blah, blah, blah. But of course, you know, I'll still be wearing my N95 and all of that. So um, I will be very, very safe. But I also, um, you know, I miss the experience of sometimes just being able to see and evaluate things in person. Um, I enjoy the convenience of shopping online. It's great. But um, I also would really like to be able to touch and feel and see things with my own eyes and to have an idea, especially not for me, really, but for things that I would like to buy in terms of food, but also like things I would like to buy for my daughter sometimes. It's been weird um, ordering child-related items solely online and not getting a chance to see them in person. Um, so that's, that's something that I'm looking forward to. Like, I just want to go to Target for like 15 minutes and just walk around. Um, I miss the sort of casual shopping experience because right now doing grocery shopping, um, is just like, it's a thing. It's on a, it's a thing on my list of things to do. And it's something I can take care of in 15 minutes. And it's terribly, 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 terribly convenient. So I appreciate that. But you know, sometimes like in-person experiences are, are fun. Um, <laughs> even if they're really mundane, um, so I'm looking forward to that, but that's pretty much it. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go wilding out. Like I'm not trying to go to Miami beach or something, uh, when I get fully vaccinated, I'm really still going to play it safe because of the, you know, the situation that being said, um, I'm also going to continue to play it safe with regard to our daughter and she's going to continue to stay home. We do as much as we can with her within reason and safely. Like we're probably going to go to some 
go to some like hidden secluded beach somewhere at some point or like a trail here and there or whatever. But for the most part, you know, she's having fun here at home. She's walking. She's playing with her. She has like a kitchen set and tool set and all these things that she likes to play with. So she's she's okay here. But, um, you know, I wish that things were better managed so that she could go hang out with other kids and meet other people other than just us and like her doctor. Um, you know, because I don't know what, she's young, so she's, she's only 13 months, but I don't know what that kind of, uh, isolation is, what, what it's going to mean for her, uh, when she gets older. And I don't also, I also don't know how much longer this is going to go on. Um, she still hasn't met family, still hasn't met anyone other than, than us, as I said, and her doctors. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see um, how this all shapes up psychologically for kids who are, you know, in families that are staying COVID safe, but also maybe like putting their children in a position of, of um, potential psychological issues going forward and hopefully easily resolvable ones. Um, but it's definitely something that I think about. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Enough about that. So... There is a connection here, I promise. Um, the promise, the connection, sorry, is that, uh, you know, one of the things that I've seen a lot of um, that, that's been kind of just frustrating um, is the, what seems to be, you know, the exorbitant degree of disposable income that people continue to have during the pandemic um, that they flaunt. And uh, part of that process, so it's, you know, sometimes it's products, um, and I've commented on this before, it was one of the things that compelled me to start this podcast to begin with. But if you go to like parent blogs, mommy blogs and forums and YouTube videos and just sort of any sort of parenting advice sources, <clears throat> there's often a focus on consumerism that I find appalling, you know, at least the degree that it goes to. Um, there's often a reliance on these super expensive items and hard to find items and, you know, this rare thing and souped up high tech, blah, blah. And it's like, it's a baby, you know, like your, your baby's not going to care. And your baby is going to play or do something for like five seconds and then eat it or throw it and break it. You know, like this is what babies do. Right. So, and children in general. Um, so I've always been of the mindset that like the main thing you should focus on when you're taking care of your children, even if they're not your own, is the experiences that they have and what they learn from interacting with you and other children and things like that. Um, to me, that's far more important than having a bunch of stuff. And so, and also I should say too, even in the sort of minimalist parenting spaces, you see a lot of this focus on hyper expensive items. So while they, the children may not have that many items, they have their outfits or their toys or whatever are, you know, imported and super fancy and made out of this special wood and special fabrics and blah, blah. And it's just, it's an unreasonable expectation that parents, um, go about this, uh, especially if they're not rich themselves, if, you know, sometimes seeing these things and especially with the pandemic going on and people having lost their jobs and just going through so much, um, it's, it's disheartening to see that some people still haven't taken a step back and thought about, you know, how, what 
how the ostentatiousness can affect other parents who already feel pressured, even if there were no pandemic. But with the pandemic, there's even more pressure on us, more fear, more anxiety, more concern constantly. And so the last thing we need is to be reminded that like, oh, we're not, we're not rich or like, you know, whatever. I think that that kind of, that situation is really frustrating to, to see playing out. And part of that process is always, I think in the background, there's always this element of childcare. And there's always an element of who's taking care of the child when they're making these videos or when they're doing these things and bragging about how much they spend on this or that or whatever. And usually it's at some point, if not in one video, another will come out that they have a maid or and or that they have a nanny. They have some woman who comes, you know, puts herself at risk, puts their family at risk to take care of their child. Um, And, you know, like, okay, so she's a worker that's understood. And, um, the problem though, is that, that she is, it's often she, so just to be clear, it's almost always a woman. Um, she is not necessarily provided with a social safety net. So in many ways, just like when we talk about Uber, um, Uber eats and DoorDash and all these sorts of gig economy type jobs and, um, outsourced jobs as well in some cases, um, what we're looking at is an economy that's in for it's it's a formal econ- economic space, but it's operating as if it is informal in that they're not allowed to unionize, um, or they don't they often don't have unions. They're paid sometimes, often in the case of people who work in domestic spaces under the table. Um, they have no sort of protections against um, violations of their rights as employees, um, violations of their rights as people. Um, And there's not really enough focus on uh, this kind of labor. It's often hidden labor, right? There, there are lots of, there are lots of demands placed on these women um, in these spaces and they don't really, they don't really have any way to, um, there's no one to, no way to hold these people accountable to kind of like make them, recognize that not only are these women, you know, like their employees, they're doing a job, but they also have rights during that job. Um, you know, I, I feel like every other year or so, uh, you know, when I was living in Brazil, there was, or when I'm in Brazil period, not just when I was living there, but like when I'm there for research, um, I would see, you know, like report after report on TV about, um, maids and nannies who were being sexually harassed by, the men in, in these families or the sons in some cases in these families. So the fathers are the sons in these cases. Um, and it's very much, you know, some of these working conditions both here and abroad, uh, are very, very reminiscent, uh, of slavery. And sometimes they are cases of slavery. Like these women aren't always paid, right. Depending on the circumstances. And so for me, um, the domestic sphere is, something that we don't prioritize that much. We don't talk about it very often in the U.S. And I think partially because, again, it's such an informal system, right? Like you go onto these websites and mommy forums and stuff, and people are talking about getting nannies and maids like they're talking about, you know, going to the grocery store and something being on sale. Like it's very, to read some of the commentary, it's just, it's very dehumanizing. Um, At least the way they speak of these women sometimes. And the things that they expect of them, um, you know, kind of haggling for pay. And then even in the cases of people who do pay them really well, there's still no discussion of healthcare. Um, you know, and I'm just thinking to myself, like we're in the middle of a pandemic. So if these women are 
sometimes often actually working for multiple families. Um, they may not have that much time off. What happens if they get sick? You know, and so there was a post once in a forum that I'm in on Facebook where they said, you know, they were talking about like that some moms were talking about like some nanny of theirs who had gotten sick. Um, and she had she was supposed to start like in a in a couple days or something for her first time on the job and she had called and said she didn't feel well, like the day before she was supposed to start or something. And the mom was asking, What should I do? You know, like I don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. And everyone was like, not everyone, but a lot of people were just like, Fire her, let her go, you know, like don't don't trust her. If she's starting this way, she's gonna continue to be this way and blah, blah, blah. And it was just so cold and heartless. And I just said to myself and then if eventually on the post itself, like, these are people maids and nannies and women who do domestic work are human beings. And this is, it's a normal thing to get sick. But the difference is that your job or your, your husband's job allows you to take, allows you all to take a sick day. Whereas apparently maids and nannies aren't allowed to have a sick day. They aren't allowed to be human beings, right? And their humanity is under recognized if it's recognized at all. Um, and, you know, I find that there is, there's certainly a racial component to this. Oftentimes, you know, women involved in domestic work um, are of color, sometimes have, um, you know, are not uh, American citizens. And sometimes if they are American citizens, they're immigrants or they're poor women, um, black women who are poor, et cetera. So fill in the blank in terms of like marginality and, and you're going to see a lot of those boxes checked, right? And so that just compounds the intensity of the kind of um, violence that's performed against these people and the sort of the, the the power dynamics that end up getting set up between, you know, women who are predominantly white and upper middle class to upper class um, and women who are poor, often, uh, you know, in, in precarious economic situations, but also um, sometimes situations in terms of, of precarity uh, regarding immigration status. Um, their likelihood to go to the authorities and how, if they would even feel safe doing that, considering the way police and other government agencies treat women of color, poor women, immigrant women, et cetera. So this is just, you know, it's sort of like a snowball effect. If you think about um, how we're as a society kind of thinking about these women and their positions of work. And in many ways, there's a comparable um, discussion to be had about sex work as well um, and prostitution and things like that. But that I think, you know, because both literally and figuratively, the idea of sex work is sexier, right? It's more salacious and we live in a highly, you know, um, puritanical society. So just talking about sex is like this exciting thing. And so in some ways, I think the sex work discussion, um, however you feel, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not, I don't want to get into the actual discussion about legalization and blah, 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 all of that. But however, regardless of what side you're on, if you actually care about the people engaged in this practice and this kind of work, then you, you should recognize not only their humanity, but their right to have protections as workers. Um, you know, their right to exist safely. And if they are going to engage in that kind of work to do so in a way that does not put them in harm's way constantly. Right. Um, and at least has some sort of checks, uh, and support, whether it be health and health or safety or monetary or whatever. Um, so, you know, I think that when we're talking about domestic work, though, we don't see we don't see as much of this 
in the news and in discussions and things like that. And especially, you know, if you're looking at online left discussions, most of the, most of these discussions are dominated by the discussion about sex work, but not necessarily a discussion about, um, domestic work. There's also, I think, and rightfully so, because these people make up the majority of workers, um, in the United States, there's often a discussion about, um, minimum wage workers, quote unquote, unskilled, unskilled work, which I hate. I don't like that term. And I think, you know, all work takes some sort of skill. Um, but that sort of language obviously just further demeans and diminishes the, you know, the, the function of the work, but also the worker, him or herself, um, themselves, they, that kind of language, um, further marginalizes people who are doing minimum wage labor. Um, so anyway, I think all of those things, um, sort of further obscure the work that domestic workers do. And there's also, unfortunately, a kind of language, um, we're regardless of the country you live in, right? There's always this language about, uh, you know, that sort of equates a maid or nanny to someone who's like a family member, right? She's like one of the family. It's as if she's one of the family. That kind of language takes away the worker element and then therefore takes away the need for that person to have their rights recognized, right? So if it's if the person is like one of the family, you can miss a couple days pay, you can pay them loosely, you don't have to pay them as much because they're doing a favor, right? They're like one of the family. Um, if you joke around with them in some way and demean their personhood, that's okay because they're like one of the family. And if they're like one of the family, they don't get to complain about their conditions because it's expected that they do these things because they're one of the family. Right. So like imagine if if your child's complaining about their their uh, allowance not being big enough or, you know, you get upset at them because they they didn't sweep something or whatever. Like people have these little quarrels with their family members all the time. But if you're talking to someone who's working for you in your family, like a maid or a nanny and you're nitpicking that person or whatever, those things become grating. That that is, you know, creating a hostile work environment. But if they're like one of the family, then you can't say that, right? Um, and so a lot of these, this this sort of language takes a it it turns the worker, the laborer, into something else. And that something else in this case is always something that means not recognizing the need for that person to have their rights met. And also not recognizing them as a worker, not recognizing what they're doing as a job, and therefore meaning that you don't need to pay them adequately and provide benefits and provide vacation days and provide time off and provide sick days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because you don't have to do that for your family, so you don't need to do that for her, right? That's the logic. It's an unspoken logic because whenever you interrogate people, whenever whenever you interrogate this sort of language, people get upset. Right? They get very they they react defensively. The other kind of language that comes up quite a bit um, is one of uh, you know, well, what else would they do, right? What else would they do if they weren't a maid or a nanny? What other kind of job would they have? I mean, <laughs> there are lots of things I could say here that may not be appropriate to put in a podcast. Um, but one that I will say is that, you know, and I've, I've heard this kind of language before and I've always said, well, we don't, first of all, we don't know what that person would have done or not had they had the option and the opportunity to do something else. Um, we don't know. I mean, some people love doing this kind of work, but usually uh, when I, what I hear from people who do this kind of work, and I've had family members who do it as well, um, 
they say, you know, it's the, the pay is good. I can get good money and I can kind of create my own schedule depending, you know, depending on the kind of work that they do. So if people are like day laborers, um, uh, in Brazil, they have this thing called diaristas, which is like some, just a cleaning lady, you know, like someone who comes once a week, once a month or whenever they have kind of a loose schedule, they come, they clean and that's it. They don't have to cook any meals for you. They don't have to take care of your kids, nothing. Uh, and then they leave. And so those kinds of workers, especially if they have multiple homes they're they're taking care of that they're cleaning they can make a lot of money um but so in some ways and they, and they have they do have some work flexibility right because they are the ones more or less in control of their schedule they set the schedule they say you know okay i'm gonna come on is, is thursday okay great and then they don't book anyone else on thursday and then tuesday's okay great and so they may have days off in between jobs and things like that um so there's that element but we don't know you know, I've never heard anyone say to me, and I've never heard anyone period in any sort of writing or documentaries or anything that I've like studied or read about this. I've never heard anyone say, you know, I just love cleaning up other people's poop or crap or dirt or whatever. I love that. That's my favorite thing on, on the earth, you know? Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and, and there are many jobs like this, right? It's not just domestic work. So, so please don't, 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 don't make me out to be one who's saying that there's something inherently wrong with domestic work. There, this is like, there's a lot of work like that, including the domestic work that women who just aren't like mothers do, right? Like you end up doing things that you don't necessarily love, but that are part of the process of your like day to day because you're taking care of someone. You're caring for a household, you're caring for a child or a spouse or an elderly parent or whatever, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that you love doing that. Uh, it means that it's something that gets done and you either get paid for it or you don't. You get paid adequately for it or you don't. Um, and that is what it is. But I don't like the framing where, you know, it's because it because the framing that what else would she do if she didn't? If she didn't have this job, what else could she possibly be doing? She could be doing something worse or more demeaning. Like, that's not a way to think about things. Like, she could also be doing something way more personally fulfilling for herself. She could be doing something that, I don't know, challenged her intellectually or whatever. We don't know. But the problem, the difference is that you don't see rich people leaving their jobs to become mates, right? This is a structural problem. Like, this is a, this is what you have to look at and say, okay, why is it that these women who do this job are almost always poor and almost always of color and almost always in some sort of precarious state? This is not an accident, right? This is an act, oftentimes a position, I should say, that people go into um, because there's no other option. Or if there is another option, it might be a worse option. And so, yeah, long story short, we don't hear enough about domestic workers and their rights, um, at least in the United States. And it's something that I would like to see a lot more of. Um, we do have, I know that there are some groups that work on this, um, that have been kind of piping up here and there, uh, to talk about a lot of different things, to, you know, depending on what's going on, but I don't hear a ton, um, at least in left spaces. There's not, there's not a huge, uh, I don't know, not a lot of discussion about this. We do talk about minimum wage, we talk about sex work, but there's not a lot of discussion of domestic work for some some reason. And it also could just be that, uh, you know, so because the labor is so invisibilized that either people don't notice or care about it, it's not something that affects them, it's not something that they engage in or they have to think about, right? Like maybe they just 
they don't have, they never encounter discussions about this. Um, or the other really kind of sad version is that they do have domestic workers um, who, with whom they interact, but they don't necessarily think about their position beyond the services that they provide, right? So there's not like a uh, an after afterthought <laughs> given to um, these these exchanges. And, um, you know, I, I remember once I was in Brazil, uh, on a, for a class that I was the program assistant for, and I was doing, you know, interpreting for them and, um, you know, setting up meetings and things like that with guest speakers and whatnot. And when I was there, you know, we met with a professor that's like very, uh, you know, she's, she's really cool. She's like a very nice person. She has uh, all these accolades and she writes, she's a white Brazilian. She writes on affirmative action and things like that. And as is custom in Brazil, you know, she has a maid and we had, we had gone out to lunch uh, with her and, and some of the students and things like that. And, you know, she, had, she's written about all these, these human rights issues and blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, just fill in the blank, like so many things she's, she's talked about that regard that are about race and class and economic uh, issues and things like that. So I asked her <laughs> just point blank. I mean, this is me being really frank, right? After she had given her talk and we had gone out to lunch with her, you know, I said, you know, I'm just curious, Professor so-and-so, do you happen to have a maid? Um, and, and she got so defensive and she was like, yes, you know, but she's not black. She's indigenous and blah, blah, blah. We pay her really well and this and that, da, da, da. And it was just, it was very interesting to see how quickly the discussion that she had had during the day, like earlier with us, kind of the underbelly of that, right? So what allows her to perform her job and allows her to do the work that she does, which is seemingly, at least on the surface, towards a more equitable world, right? Um, she at the same time engages in she has interactions with someone whom based on her response, she doesn't probably doesn't pay that well <laughs> and may not have, may not provide the best environment, working environment for her. I don't know. I'm not on the inside of her house. I have no idea what's going on there, but I'm just basing it on the response that she gave to my question. Um, because as I said, it's such a common practice in Brazil that people don't think anything of it. Like it's, it's really just like everybody's got a maid and it is what it is, but like everybody's maid is also very off, like 99.9% of the time, not a white woman. Um, usually a woman of color who's either uh, black, biracial or indigenous and, or, you know, in all those cases. So anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, I bring this up too, because there was a great article that I read, uh, I mean, not, not great in a funny way, but great in like a very sad, depressing way. Uh, there's a blogger named uh, Chris Gutejish, uh, who's Brazilian, and she wrote about this case in, not a case, but it was like a, an, an event issue, whatever, something happened, and happening in Brazil where this family had had their their maid come, you know, and they were like, okay, we want you to cook this, 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 and this, like make all this food. Uh, they didn't tell her what it was for. Um, and then after she was done, they were like, surprise, happy birthday. <laughs> Which like, 
oh my god you know like what on earth what in the hell um so they basically literally like made this woman you know like slave over her this food all day like she made this huge feast and then they quote-unquote surprised her by letting her know that it was for her at the end it was all for her and I just I mean like (laughs) there's so many levels to this it's just disgusting like I, I don't know there's so that the article like stayed in my in my brain maybe burnt a hole in part of it um because it's just the absurdity the levels of absurdity are so high on this um that again just just look at like the <laughs> you know they're giving her extra work to do they're not paying her extra for it they are acting like it's some sort of gift for her but it's her labor right so like how is that supposed to be a gift um and you know I just yeah there's just the out of touch aspects to it uh are are numerous but anyway um you know the reason this is an issue especially right now with the pandemic going on is because a lot of women because of the situation the economic situation and because we can't oftentimes you know, depending on your job, you may not be working outside of the home. You may be working from home. Uh, but then you also have a child at home that you are taking care of, that you're doing at home schooling with and whatever. And then your husband or partner may also work. So like, how do you create time for yourself? How do you do your work while everyone else is working and you're trying to take care of a child too? And so a lot of times, you know, like people will get, um, maids or nannies or someone to come and help with the child in lieu also of taking them to daycare right because depending on your state your city your your personal situation you know like taking your child to daycare may not be an option may not be a safe option may not be an option for a whole host of other reasons um and so this really like I mean as I've commented on over and over and over has has been an incredibly taxing process for many of us um who are trying to work but also raise children in the process of of trying to stay safe from the pandemic stuff um and i've been reminded repeatedly of an article that nancy fraser wrote or it was an interview with nancy fraser excuse me a few years back in the times new york times um for those of you who may not know nancy fraser is is a, a socialist leftist um economist and sociologist she does economy and sociology stuff all the time and she talks often about women and feminism and things like that uh women in labor and you know she she mentioned uh this is actually in response at, at one part of the interview to um the book lean in and this whole idea of like you know, leaning in and then what subsequently became later on after this interview, the cold girl boss feminism and stuff like that. Um, and Sheryl Sandberg's idea of leaning in, Nancy Fraser argued, was something that required leaning on, quote unquote, other women. And most of the time, women of color who were poor, who were immigrants, etc. Um, and how it makes you wonder, you know, like, where's the sort of feminist book for them, right? Like where is their, um, what kind of feminism are they being allowed to engage in, right? If, if, if we're saying, okay, these other women should like, you know, really work hard in the office and spend all this time and like get involved in everything and like have your kid and have your job and have your cake and eat it too, right? But there's always a woman in the background, a, a poorer woman than you, who's doing all the work <laughs> to help you get to where you need to go, right? I mean, these women are not necessarily, the ones who are like the Sheryl Sandberg types, 99.9% of the time have a nanny or a maid or both, 
Um, and even if, um, you know, even, even in the cases of, and I would say this is perhaps a better option, even in the cases of daycare, if you can find a daycare that provides, you know, days off, paid time off, um, maternity leave, paternity leave, whatever, uh, decent healthcare for their workers, fabulous. This is great. You know, like this, this is the kind of daycare everyone should have access to. Right. But oftentimes that's not the case, you know, like a lot of daycare, uh, daycare setups are clandestine and they're not necessarily, um, you know, like they're not always regulated. Sometimes it's just a bunch of people hanging out at somebody's house. There's also the issue of like, oftentimes what um, wealthier moms do is they'll have what's called a nanny share where they have one nanny uh, who basically takes care of two or three other families sometimes together, right? So it'll be like one day the kids are at my house, next day kids are at another house, et cetera. So that's called a nanny share. These are all things that I learned uh, after having a child, because I had never heard of this stuff before, because I am not wealthy and did not have a nanny, a nanny or maid growing up, um, but it's the thing that people do. And so, anyway, uh, there's not always a, a like safe and equitable option, even in the prospect of even in that the area of daycare. Excuse me, um, when there should be right. But anyway, Sheryl Sandberg's um, situation where she's, she's, you know, this big CEO and doing all these things and whatnot, you know, what Frazier points out is that that, that aspect of who's helping her in the background is not, not indicated in the book. Right. And this is just one more like level of invisible labor that I already talked about. Um, the way that these women are invisibilized. And in some ways it reminds me a lot, actually not some ways, it very much reminds me of, um, you know, the discussions that are had about the professors, the male professors whose wives helped them, like who helped them tremendously and they don't even bother to think or who like in some cases did research for them and they don't even cite them. Like there's so many instances like this, you know, the fact that the wife will like take care of the kids while the husband is going around the world and doing research and writing and whatever. There's just, there's so many instances of, um, especially poor women who are made invisible by virtue of these sort of neoliberal or liberal approaches to, to things like feminism. Um, and, you know, I've, I've noticed with time, um, especially as you start to see, you know, more people of color ascending economically, especially black women, like you'll see black and Latino women talking about having maids and things like that as if just like white women, you know? So in some ways it is, it's this process that, doesn't trickle down to poor women, but sort of trickles up to middle and upper class women, regardless of, of race. Um, so, and I think there's also this sort of mythic, uh, difference in relationships where the idea is, well, you know, at least if they're both of color, if both the maid and the, the employer is of color, the, you know, then, then things are going to be a little bit more, uh, equitable or, uh, hospitable or friendly or positive as a working environment for the maid. And there's no guarantee to that. But I think some people assume that, you know, that's sort of the way they present it. Um, and that's not always the case. Uh, there's still a chasm between these women economically and what that looks like and how that plays out in the household is certainly something that shouldn't be ignored simply because they're both of the same race or ethnic group. Um, yeah. So 
I've been wondering throughout this process, you know, how do we make sense of and make more equitable the realm of domestic labor? Um, I don't have the right answers to this. Obviously, I think, you know, it starts with unions, like women who work in domestic spaces should be allowed to unionize. There should be at least a base salary, um, like a floor, uh, minimum wage of sorts for people who work in this sort of field. Um, and there should absolutely be some sort of, uh, this is, see, this is where like having single payer would be great because everyone would be covered regardless of their job. But, um, there should be some sort of mechanism through which these women are guaranteed healthcare because there isn't right now. Right. So you can hire a nanny all you want. You could pay her 25, 30, 40, $50 an hour, whatever you want to pay her. But at the end of the day, she doesn't have union opportunities. She doesn't have, um, job security necessarily. She doesn't have healthcare. She doesn't have a retirement plan. She doesn't have so many things or transportation, whatever. Like there's so, so, so many things that just aren't covered. That should be, um, if we're going to start talking about making this, you know, if this is going to be a, um, another perhaps like area or space where we as leftists needs to go, need to go and start considering how, what does it look like to incorporate women who engage in this sort of often almost always informal labor of domestic work what does it look like for them for their rights to be guaranteed but then also and please do not accuse me of being a trad wife or something I'm not at all pushing that that is not like like that's not what I'm interested in at all but I one of the things that this entire pandemic and being a mother within it like a new mother first-time mother within a pandemic is like, and when I say within a pandemic, I mean, like, I literally feel like I'm like rolled up in the pandemic. Like, it's not just I'm in a pandemic. It's like, it's my entire, <laughs> like, it's shaped and changed my entire life in a lot of ways. Uh, but parenting in a pandemic, you know, has made me kind of reflect on a lot of things regarding labor expectations, you know, seeing this country not really stop at all during the pandemic and it had the same expectations of work and productivity as it did before. Um, same, whether you're, you're a parent or not, you're expected to do exponential amounts of things that maybe you just don't have time to do. Um, but the expectation is still there from your, your employers. So like so many women, you know, after they have kids, they're expected to go right back to work. Um, and you know, they get a month or two off, maybe that, if you're working minimum wage, good luck getting anything close to that. So the expectation is that the economy and the capitalist economy, to be more clear, comes first before you, before your family, before anything else. So that expectation's always been there. But with the pandemic, having it there just didn't make any sense to me because I'm like, wow, people are dying uh, from from their work environments in many cases, and that you're and you're expecting these people not only to leave their children, God knows where, um, and and perhaps in an unsafe situation in terms of disease and whatnot there too, you expect them to just leave their kids somewhere and then go to work, and then you're going to be dealing with exposure back and forth between the family and the, the workplace and the kid, and it's just like an infinite amount of problems there, and that seemingly little to no consideration was given to. Um, and then you have the element of, you know, like, what are we supposed to do if we're then expected to work full time, if we do have children in the pandemic? 
whether it's from home or elsewhere, where do your children go? And so many people were turning to sort of informal spaces because in some cases daycares were shut down or not safe. And so they were turning to these this this domestic work, domestic sphere of labor to cover those needs. Um, but how do like how do we make room for women to be in the corporate world or do their jobs, whatever they may be, full time? While at the same time expecting them to parent and be the, the not only the caregiver for the child, but often the teacher for the child in the pandemic, and then the caretaker of the home and all of that, with, how do we expect that without her having any help? I know it's possible because I'm doing it, but I don't know if I'm successful at it because I feel like I'm, as I've said before, in triage mode all the time. I don't sleep. I don't get any breaks. I, you know, would kill to have a day off from my life right now <laughs> but I don't have that but I don't think that this can this these conditions are sustainable for anyone so you know like I understand in some cases why some women would say okay you know screw it let me just get a, a nanny I'll I'll spend the money I've got you know a little extra money a little extra income I can spend it on this but then I also wonder as a as part of that how these conditions have also increased the precarity, labor precarity, personal precarity for women who are working in the domestic sphere. So women who are maids and nannies now being even more likely to uh, be exposed to the disease or to the virus, I should say, um, even in more grave situations in terms of their worker protections, which are not formalized. Um, and even in, in greater competition over money, right? Because you're saying, well, I, I, the job prospects are really slim to none, limited right now. I'm going to go work as a maid. Hopefully I can make X amount of money. But if they don't, then they may have to still take it because they need the money because there are no other jobs, right? So it's just it's just this like race to the bottom and it's really scary to me and I don't know what things are going to look like, you know, in this realm going forward. But I just, I think for me, one of the weirdest things to witness during the pandemic was just how callous uh, people were. And, and this is like other women, right? So, so much for sisterhood. <laughs> it's that lean in feminism for you. Um, how callous people were and careless about, you know, the, the conditions that they were putting their, their employees technically in. But I guess if they're just like the family, then it doesn't really matter, right? Anyway, um, just some thoughts on that. You know, I, I hope that going forward that we can see something like, uh, you know, a movement in the United States to really ensure and protect um, women engaging in domestic work regardless of their backgrounds. I know there's always going to be illegal stuff. I know there's always going to be stuff done under the table and, you know, outside of the the purview of, of people who are supposed to regulate this stuff. But there should at least be an attempt made on the surface, starting on the surface and obviously going beyond that, um, to make sure that these women are covered, that they have a social safety net, that they have rights and their rights are protected. Because at the at, at present, we don't have that. Um, oh, hey, one quick thing. This is Wendy from the future, by the way. Um, I just wanted to say that I know that there is 
the um, National Domestic Workers Alliance that exists. They are technically not a union. They're an advocacy group um, for domestic workers. But some of the people in their leadership have some questionable connections with um, politicians who have actively gone against um, union organizing rights, uh, minimum wage rights, health care rights. <laughs> so I don't necessarily consider them the type of thing that I'm talking about, although they, they've done really great work and that's fine. Um, much respect to them for that. But I just wanted to make it clear, and I even included an article about them in the show notes, but I wanted to make it clear that, um, you know, if you're cozying up with neoliberal politicians who are acting in ways that go against the people you're supposed to be advocating for, then I'm not sure how productive you're going to be as an advocacy group for those people. So just my two cents on that. Um, you know, hopefully they see the light, uh, and get better at that in the future. But, um, yeah, I'm sure people appreciate the work that they do if they've been involved, but it can go further. And that's more or less what I'm pushing for something that goes a little bit, uh, if not very much further <laughs> than that. So yeah, that's it. Thanks. We don't, we're not looking at that kind of horizon, you know, like there are organizations here and there, but what I see that's going on behind the scenes is not pretty. Um, and I don't, I don't, it, it rubs me the wrong way incredibly, uh, that, that so many of these women are, you know, they're doing it because they have no other option and they're not able to spend time with their own kids, their own families, because they're taking care of some other, someone else's family, you know, because they rely on that for, for money, but they don't have any protections. And, um, oh yeah, sorry. One more thing. I, uh, earlier I was kind of like, I forgot to, to finish this comment. It was kind of an open parentheses here, but this idea of like the trad wife stuff, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that all women should be housewives, like quite the contrary, right. That we have to come up with some sort of way that women and men too, uh, anyone who has a family is given the opportunity to have some sort of life work balance. We have to have, uh, we have to have as a society, a social safety net for them, obviously, but also some sort of, I don't know, like there, there has to be some way and some time to spend with our families. We should be able to have more flexible labor or something of that sort so that we're not constantly relying on outsourcing the entire process of our life to other people to do this work. Because I, as I said, you know, like I don't have a maid or a nanny and I personally am not ever going to get one. It's not my thing. I don't, I have personal reasons that I don't believe in, in, on my, for myself, I would not hire a maid or nanny. Um, but you know, it's so many things right now about our lives are completely outsourced. Everything is outsourced third party. You know, like you have, you have someone cook your food, someone take care of your kid, someone to do this, someone to, everything is like service sector work, some formal, some informal. Um, and you know, I wonder how, how far down the ladder this is going to go. You know, we're outsourcing so many things now that, and it's becoming normalized. It has become normalized, um, in a way that I, I question, um, I question whether or not it's healthy for us, you know? And sometimes I, I say, you know, I like, don't get a maid. Don't put this on yet another woman to do this work. Make your husband do some work, you know? You should, you should, like y'all, if, if you're both able-bodied and available, you have a free minute of time, he should also help, right? But I see some, I see so many ads that are like, 
you know, my husband and I are looking for like a live-in nanny or live-in maid. We both work from home and this and that. It's just, there's a lot of like, there question marks that pop up, right? Um, and I remember seeing once too on YouTube, there was, there's a woman who is, I will not name her, but she's a fa- like a family blogger, beauty blogger. She does all this stuff. This is like multiple um, types of themes for her YouTube channel. And she has a nanny come every day of the week, I think. Um, and she has, she works from home herself until the afternoon. And then, you know, the maid spends like, an, or the nanny spends, she comes at like seven in the morning and works with them until five or something. And then the mother has like an hour with the kids and then she puts the kids to bed and that's it. <laughs> and I'm just like... I can't take parenting advice from you, you know? She's also one of the women who's, like, constantly flaunting her wealth and talking about all this, this like, really expensive stuff she's buying for her kids. But, yeah, it's it's astounding. Like, and people will just say this stuff with a straight face. And then I'm supposed to take parenting advice from you when you spend an hour max with your kids every day? Like, what? So maybe that's the parenting advice, <laughs> like maybe the advice is don't spend any time with your kids and you'll you'll love it you'll have the best parenting experience ever I don't know I'm not really sure but you know and this is to be clear I I know this is like sounding judgmental or whatever but I'm not so much concerned about the people although there are absolutely people out there who are terrible and don't see any problem with like taking advantage of the women who care for basically every aspect of their lives so that's that's like that aside there's it's a systemic critique, right? Because the issue is that we don't have a society that values family time. We don't have a society that values rights. We don't have a, a, a society that values people who do all sorts of work for us. Um, and, and we ignore those people. You know, we ignore their their needs and their rights and their families and their their lives outside of work. You know, you're not just your job. And I think that sometimes... more or less often, you know, like when we talk about people, we think of them solely as whatever it is that they do. And, you know, that, that, that's not healthy either. But if you're doing domestic work and then you're on top of that, you're being neglected, you're being overworked, you're being underpaid, you're not given a social safety net. You know, the person that you are is a shell of yourself. You are, and on top of that, you're invisibilized. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a, um, it's not a condition that one would want to continue like that and say that they're, they're healthy. You know, like you can't do a job like that and then go home and have to do all the work for your household as well. And then come away from it, not being paid well, not having health care, not having a union, not having any rights respected, and then say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm healthy as a human being like that. No way. You know, no way. Those conditions are not sustainable. They're not fair. They're not equitable. And they're absolutely atrocious if we're talking about things from a human rights standpoint. And I think that you know, like no one wants to look at themselves and see how they're contributing to the problem. Um, and, and I think we, we come up with these sort of band-aids where we say, oh, well, at least we pay them well. Okay. And then we feel good about it. We feel good about ourselves. Not we, me, myself, but we in general as a society, right? The same thing was happening with Amazon. I mean, it's a, it's a very similar discussion to have. 
you say, okay, well, now they get paid more, so it's fine, right? It's fine that they can't unionize. It's fine that they don't have decent health care. It's fine that, like, employees are dying on the job because they're forcing them to test people for COVID. You know, it's fine. They're getting paid $15 an hour, which is great, wonderful. So it's not that bad. And that's the problem. <laughs> anyway, all that aside, thank you all for listening. Um, just some some thoughts I was throwing out there that have been floating around in my head for a while, but that, that I didn't have a chance to sit down and actually uh, put on this recording. So here they are. There they are. Um, and I'm going to include the article from Chris Gutejis in the, the show notes um, and maybe some other stuff as well. Uh, but yeah, and, and also, oh, really quickly, um, I would just highly suggest there's so many black and Latin American feminists who write about this that you absolutely should check out if you can read, uh, Spanish or Portuguese, look them up. Um, but also there are, there are black women in the United States who and Latina women who've talked about this in the U S as well. But this idea of like, you know, what kind of feminism is it if, <laughs> if you all are demanding the white women, at least, you know, this is like, I'm talking from end of slavery onwards, right? White women were demanding to to have the right to work and black women and Latina women and indigenous women were, were like poor ones, at least, which is the majority if you're talking about post-abolition. But anyway, um, the majority of them are saying, well, we already work outside. We work outside of the home. So we're already doing that. So we want the right to take a day off. We want the right to relax. We want the right to have our work and labor respected and properly remunerated. You know, like the the demands are always just everyone's talking past each other. And that talking past happens because white feminists historically have not seen black women and other women of color as their their equals or their peers. They've seen them as, you know, their servants, people who work for them, the people who prop them up and allow them to get what they need to get done done. But then what about the the lives of these women that they're stepping on to get there? So yeah, lots of thoughts. Um, I could go on and on about this, but I won't because I have to go start my like shift number 8006 or whatever of the day. Um, but yeah, just wanted to put this out there. Um, hope everyone's doing okay. There's going to be more left POC stuff in the pipeline coming or coming down the pike, I should say. I don't know. I, I forget phrases at this point. I've been doing a lot of translating and I like can't remember phrases in English anymore. It's, it's all a blur, but anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for the folks who, um, have supported left POC on Patreon and through other means. I really appreciate you. Obviously Richard appreciates you as well. Um, anyone who listens to left POC also appreciates you because you help us stay above board, uh, cause we have to pay for web storage and things like that. So much appreciated to all of you. Thank you for listening. And, um, yeah, be on the lookout for more stuff and, uh, stay safe, everyone. Yeah, that's it. I hope everyone's doing well. And, oh, if you have, um, if you happen to have any good resources on, um, you know, potential moves to unionize maids or cases of, um, at least in the U S I know some cases elsewhere. I know of cases, uh, in Brazil and things like that, but if you happen to have any information about the U S situation and about domestic workers and sort of, um, protecting domestic workers rights, please send them my way. I will absolutely shout them out, promote them. Um, and, and yeah, there, cause I don't know, man, a lot of this stuff is so informal and it's so disturbing the way that these women are spoken about and treated and 
something's got to give. And I hope that we see one day soon, you know, like what we're watching and witnessing go on in Bessemer, which like all support to those workers. And I hope they're allowed to unionize. I want to see that same kind of energy from the left behind, uh, you know, women who are domestic workers and who are engaging in all sorts of uh, dangerous, time-consuming, exhausting work and not getting properly remunerated or supported in the process. So anyway, that being said, thanks everybody again. (laughs) Be safe and uh, check you later. Bye.